Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show, offering unique insights and in-depth analysis, featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers, and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Metz. Live every weekday at noon, and then we are up as a podcast. This is Money Web at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs with 30 minutes of Express News on developments here in South Africa and around the world, including interviews with business and political leaders, prominent newsmakers, and top commentators. It's Tuesday, the 5th of December. Coming up on the program, the potential impact of an ANC liquidation threat by Isolwini Investments. Is there a Kennedy-like assassination conspiracy around ESCOM? One prominent political figure seems to think so. Union pressure mounting on the electricity minister to guarantee a free flow of power to hospitals and the 1SA movement on the Constitutional Court's decision on signatures and independent candidates. Embarrassing and awkward, to say the least, after the African National Congress blocked access to the sheriff of the Gauteng High Court here in Johannesburg, which sought to attach its physical assets. Now, all of this relates to a 102 million rand debt plus interest and costs, which it owes uh, Ezel Wini Investments for election banners and other campaign material. So what impact, I'm going to ask, could this have on the party and its election chances? And leading the program today is Sunday. Sandili Swana, who is a political commentator. Sandili, so the ANC's failure to pay this company and the subsequent legal action, to what extent do you think it's going to impact its reputation among voters and supporters? The, the obvious impact among thinking South Africans, Jeremy, and your listeners is, is that the ANC is an institution, an organization, a ruling party that is financially careless. It doesn't even know Number one, how to take care of its own suppliers, local South African businesses uh, for a long time. Five years is a long time to be owing this money for a core service such as sponsoring, the, uh, to, uh, developing and deploying the marketing material of a, of, a, of a major political party, the largest in South Africa. So it does really, really tell us that you are confronted with a ruling party that is a financial mismanager. And this also has serious legal implications in terms of contestation in the poll next year, doesn't it? Yes, uh, you will probably find that, you know, the IEC may not act on its own volition alone. You may find others, whether it's the DA, the EFF, Afri Forum, whoever it may be, going to the relevant authorities including the IEC, the Electoral Court, and whoever else may be relevant to the matter, to say, look, this party is not fit to stand for elections. And that is the real danger. Although, I mean, I listened to the spokesperson of the IEC trying to downplay this whole thing, um, and, 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 but the, the truth of the matter is that, I mean, I've been in meetings where senior members of the ANC admitted that they have a long-term financial crisis in the ANC. Mm that they don't have money for, and they are not going to have money for a long time. In defense of the ANC, the party is saying that it was a flawed contract. 
and that the court uh, got it wrong. But it would seem odd that uh, the court made a decision based on flawed findings. No, if you read some of the comments, they are frightening. When a judge starts saying that you are, you are creating fictitious points of uh, difference, uh, points of argument and dispute, fictitious, uh, then basically in plain English, you are being called a liar by the judges. So uh, they, 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 uh, there's things then and with available information, they have no defense. So what do you think is going to happen now as a result of this asset seizure and liquidation threat? Do you think it's possible for the party at the 11th hour to recover from this? Look, they they have to find money from one of their friends inside and outside the country, the many billionaires that the ANC has made and allies elsewhere. My view is that they've got to find that money and find it quick and pay this uh, Ezulwini. I don't think they've got any other alternative. Some of the actions that these people might take is to attach bank accounts and just freeze everything. So this is this from here, it can just get worse. I mean, I listened to the lawyer of Bezolui. The ANC offered 10 million to settle a debt of 102 million. So the thing is a crisis and Ezulun is not walking away from it. They've got to find the money or make a decent offer plus terms of payment. That's the only way they're going to come out of this. Sandili, who do you think the party could uh, approach in terms of uh, rich benefactors? Well, the, the Saki Matozomas of this world, the Patrice Mutsipes of this world, Ramaphosa himself, many of these guys have got every type of billion you can think of. They've even got access to people in Sudan, in Dubai, uh, in Russia, and all sorts of places. The only thing that you and I will worry about, the voters and the citizens, will be out of desperation how much more of its soul will the ANC sell to head, lay its hands on money? That is the big question. Sandili, it's not just about selling your soul, of course. It's also about uh, any loan that the party might take will come with strings attached. And in this case, that string would be more like a rope, I imagine. It, it, it is like that. I mean, basically, if you are already in this situation, it basically means you are going to loan sharks of one kind or the other. You are going to people who are not so reputable uh, and it's going to come with strings attached. The ANC actually, let me just put it on the table what I thought about this. The position, the financial position of the ANC is opening a West chapter, a, a West chapter of state capture than we had before. Because anybody who bails out the ANC in any shape or form is going to be for a pound of flesh. And that is where these guys are taking us now with this whole financial desperation that they've created. There are two other aspects as far as this is concerned. One is this crisis could very well have an impact on the internal dynamics and the leadership of the party as there would be uh, disagreement and contestation about strategy. And the second one is, given that we're drawing ever closer to next year's poll, surely it's going to have the impact of negative publicity and its fundraising abilities. Yeah, the second one is pretty straightforward. Uh, the, the, the credibility of the ANC uh, on the economic and financial front is in big question. And if you put money openly into the ANC, as is the case in South African law right now, you can't go there and, and, and say, I'll give you guys half a, uh, let's say 500,000 or 5 billion 
and keep quiet about it. Just those days are gone. So anybody who puts money that gets some branding with the ANC, and that branding is a branding of financial delinquency. Mm. On the side of the factions, because that's what we are talking about, for instance, the Zuma faction, the Mahashule faction, uh, will be saying, guys, when Zuma was in charge, we had money all the time. But everybody knows where that money came from. Ramaphosa and Mashatile came in and they say they are changing the funding model and they uh, lost the ANC into perpetual financial crisis, lost the country into deep economic crisis. So there is room for the, the RIT forces to really, really rally around this thing to say, guys, you don't know what you're doing. I hear the spokesperson of the ANC defending the current Treasury General without stating what the balance sheet looks like, the actual balance sheet, because, I, I mean, I'm very interested to see the balance sheet of the ANC right now. So contestation is there, and there are reasons, good reasons, hard reasons, that it, during Zuma's time, there was plenty of money to go around. And during Cyril's time, there's no money. Sandili Swan, I'm going to leave it there. Thank you very much indeed for that uh, very blunt assessment. MoneyWeb at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories. Let's stay with politics and independent candidates will need to obtain a thousand signatures to register for next year's provincial and national elections. And this follows a ruling by the Constitutional Court. You'll remember the two organizations, One South Africa and the Independent Candidates Association, lodging challenges to the Act's constitutionality in June and July of this year. Joining us now on MoneyWeb at Midday is uh, Mudzuli uh, Rakabani, who's head of candidate recruitment at Build One South Africa. So first of all, I'm assuming that you would be happy with this decision by the court. Um, well, yes. Um, obviously, after a very long um, and tedious process with Parliament, it's good to see that, firstly, the court has made a ruling on what the signature requirement will be, but also that there's finality for the IUC to then be able to get along with the processes and that we can have um, a swift election early next year. Is this going to lead to a flood of independent candidates, do you think? No, I think um, there's obviously a lot of like frenzy around, you know, every Tom, Dick and Harry is now going to be on the ballot. Um, but the thousand signature requirement um, is what parties have been using this entire time. And we haven't really seen an influx of um, parties that end up on the ballot. What we have seen is an increase of registered political parties. But there are a number of factors that usually tend uh, or lead people not to act contesting elections. Um, one of the requirements as well is a deposit and usually people don't have the money for that and the reality is elections are very difficult, um, extremely humbling and expensive and so those factors tend to limit um, the number of people that we see on the ballot um, and the trend has been, you know, uh, parties only have like increased by a couple of percent every election and that trend will probably continue. But a thousand signatures is a very low threshold so conceivably we might see the right people for the right constituency coming at the right time. Ideally, and that's why um, we fought so hard at the court to make sure, I mean, before this, their signature requirement was like in the 15,000 range. Um, and so we, the reason why we fought that is to make sure that this didn't become a barrier um, to entry for the people, the kind of people that you're talking about. Having said that, though, it would also be incumbent to make sure that the proper measures are in place to ensure that any independent candidate is properly vetted because there would be the opportunity of opportunists or chances exploiting this ruling. 
Yeah, um, and unfortunately, I mean, the same thing can be said for political parties. And unfortunately, our electoral system doesn't actually um, have anything that really acts as a barrier. We have sort of the bare minimum constitutional requirements about um, people who are excluded from being members of parliament and provincial legislatures. But there is no mechanism that's ever really existed to sort of um, snub out nefarious characters. Um, And so that would be a whole other electoral reform process that as a country we'd need to embark on uh, with the sign off of Parliament, which as you would imagine would be quite difficult. Um, But these are the same issues we've had pre and post um, the signature of Parliament. What is your party or your organisation's sense of the emergence of so-called independent candidates uh, in spite of the potential money difficulties that you raise and the signatures and the vetting? Are you starting to discern that there are people who are willing to throw their hat into the ring for the right reasons? Yeah, and I think, the, the, you know, independent candidacy isn't just for independent candidacy's sake. The whole point of the electoral reform process was to engage people who felt like they were sort of outside of the system and bring them back in. So you want people from business, you want people who are leaders in NGOs, in leaders in communities, um, leaders with really critical skills that we need to solve the problems in this country um, to feel like they can participate in this process again and that's why this journey was started and what we've seen at least in our organization through our recruitment processes is those are the kinds of people that this new sense um, of sort of electoral reform is engaging Um, whether or not that will manifest in sort of out and out independent candidates I think we're still quite away away from that as a country. I think we'll see like one or two really prominent people, for example, Zaki Ahmad, um, emerge from this process. But I think we're still away sort of politically from that um, out-and-out independent candidates really like gunning for artists. Apart from Zaki Ahmad, and we have spoken to him on this program before, and I'm not asking you to name names, but what kind of people are likely to rise to this challenge? Who are they? So what we're seeing, uh, we're seeing quite a number of people from business emerge, um, people who've been sort of in the private sector for a while um, decide to sort of come, and, and, and it makes sense, right? Because the private sector doesn't exist out sort of sort of outside of the political situation of the country. So um, there's almost like a rationality to say, if my business is perpetually affected by bad governance, maybe I should actually step into governance. So we're seeing that. We're seeing a lot of um, quote-unquote community leaders, so leaders who are actually doing the work um, but who haven't really been too keen on sort of the political offerings so far. We're seeing them also, out of just sheer frustration, um, take up the positions to say, you know what, I'm going to put my hand up because I actually have the solutions. I've been doing that at the micro level, and now it's sort of time for me Mm. to take the next step. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Mudzule Rakabani, Head of Candidate Recruitment at Build One South Africa. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. In, in a blunt opinion piece, commentator Oscar van Heerden is writing that trying to understand what is wrong at ESCOM right now is trying to understand the assassination of John F. Kennedy. It's an interesting comparison. Van Heerden, by the way, is a senior research fellow for African diplomacy and leadership at the University of Johannesburg. And he's with us now on MoneyWeb at Midday. So, Oscar, uh, all we're missing in your scenario is the famous grassy knoll. How do you make that comparison? Well, as you know, Jeremy, that matter has not been resolved to date. There's all sorts of questions still hanging in the air as to who's responsible. Was it Lee Harvey Oswald on his own? Did he have any 
people that assisted him? Was it the mafia? Was it the Cubans? Was it a combination of all? And I make the comparison just to highlight that over the last 15 years, the crisis in ESCOM and what we have been told as the public has been similar to these sort of answers and uh, conspiracies that we find with the JFK assassination where they told us that at first it was a money issue and we had needed to build Kosile and Medupe, which we then did at the tune of billions. Uh, that didn't resolve the question. Then we uh, heard that actually there's maintenance problems. Then we heard that there's corruption within the utility. Mm. And the list just goes on and on. And we're not getting any nearer to actually resolving and finding out what exactly is causing load shedding in South Africa currently. Oscar, do you think that it's an inability to explain the complexity of the situation or simple deliberate obfuscation? I think it's a combination of both, to be honest with you, Jeremy. From where I'm sitting, I think that ESCOM is not entirely truthful with us in terms of what exactly are the problems. But at the same time, there's also people from the highest level to the blue-collar worker that have decided that this crisis, the perpetuation of this crisis, is actually quite lucrative. And I suspect there's also a combination of that, where you have deliberate breakdowns, deliberate uh, fires, deliberate uh, switches that are broken, so that that maintenance plan rolls over and over and over, and lots and lots of people get uh, very, very rich, including the use of diesel. Because as you know, when all else fail, burn diesel. And we know, for example, that there are relatives and so forth of prominent individuals, including politicians, that are also in that sector. And they're making lots and lots of money. And the impact of this economy of the truth is what? Well, this is the thing. And and that's why I elevated it in my opinion piece to suggest that the electricity crisis is a clear and present danger to the Republic of South Africa because the need for electricity, the need for constant energy is such that it is the driving force of the economy. And if we continue to have these load sheddings and and problems, challenges in terms of debt, in terms of provision, etc. More and more companies like Accelerometal, VW and others are going to withdraw from the economy because it becomes unsustainable and more and more people are not going to invest in the economy because they are risk averse. And until such time that we actually solve the problem, we're not going to see growth within the economy. And because we have an election next year, Oscar, one imagines these waters will become even more murky. Indeed. I think the ANC is completely at a loss. Uh, When Ramakhopa came in, I understand what he continues to try and do, which is to incrementally solve this problem whether it's going to each of the power stations saying, what is the problem? Is it a a human resource matter? Is it a maintenance issue? Is it a parts issue? And solve it in that way. But unfortunately, time doesn't allow for us to just continue that incremental manner. And whilst that happens, they embarrass him by having these constant breakdowns, explosions, uh, maintenance issues, and so forth. I mean, Reactor 1 of Cuba came online after the repairs. Reactor 2 now has to be switched off, probably for another six months. Mm. Kusile Reactor came online. We've gone to mothballed power stations and we brought them online, whether it's gas or diesel. And still, we are not able to provide enough capacity. 
because load shedding is still happening. You make two interesting points. One is for private sector engineering firms to become more involved. And the second one is, let's start with that, the deployment of the SANDF at power stations. To that point, haven't we tried that already and it didn't work? Well, at the moment, their brief is simply to look at criminality. And I think that the Minister of Defence has reported that quite a lot of arrests have been done uh, to the tune of more than 2,000. So there is some positives that's come from it. But I'm suggesting that the SANDF actually gets involved in another way, which is to actually make sure that the current employee force, the current employees of ESCOM, and I do cast aspersions on them, Jeremy, uh, because I do think some, not all, of course, but some are complicit with this ongoing crisis. And I think that's where we require the SANDF to sort of keep a watchful eye on the current employee force. The second element, of course, is where I suggest that because there's a a capacity issue, uh, and people talk of incompetence, but I'm saying that perhaps this is the time to call on private companies to say, can you come to the party? Of course, we know that it's going to be at a cost, but we are prepared to incur that cost if we know that you are going to be able to correct some of the engineering uh, infrastructural issues, systems issues, to try and make sure that this crisis don't continue. But very quickly, there seems to be a, an inbuilt resistance often by state and enterprises to call in the private sector for assistance. Absolutely. And I'm saying in the indirect way, if you read my article and read between the lines, I think it is the case because there is corruption. I think that the, the, the resistance to the private sector coming in, bringing in additional capacity to check for criminality and so forth, is because that chaotic environment is where corruption is, is able to mushroom. Oscar van Heerden, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. So let's stay with ESCOM and power generation and the health and allied workers in Darbet Trade Union is calling on the electricity minister, Jose Enzo Ramachopa, to implement the court order of the High Court to stop load shedding in all public health care facilities by the end of January next year. More now from Leratum Tunzi, who is the general secretary of the union. And first up, are you not confident then that the minister is going to honour this decision? No, absolutely not. I think we have a government that is extremely arrogant and they've demonstrated their arrogance because they have actually made uh, some uh, submissions to intend to appeal this. And we are saying, look, you have promised since 1994 as the government of the day, as the ANC, that their lives, actually healthcare, will be made not a, a, a nice to have. It mm-hmm. is an entrenched right in the Constitution. But close to 30 years, you've not been able to do that. And we know next year, as we go into the polls, you'll be coming and saying better life for all. You'll be saying free health care. But you, at this present moment, it's your time to demonstrate that indeed these people that are voting you into power, their lives that you couldn't save just by the way during the pandemic of COVID-19. This time around when you are the ones switching off their power to allow them to die even at infancy, 
that you must do the right thing for the first time. And right. that's let, let, me, let me let me let me let me ask you this conscience. question then. Let me ask mm. you this question then. What further legal steps is your union prepared to take to ensure that the court order is enforced? We will not only obviously the legal route from our side is it's, it's quite tight. Whatever that the department de- decides, the Department of Energy decides to to avert through the long legalistic process, which is obviously something that they will want to come back and say it is their right. I think we also have parallel uh, uh, strategies that we are going to put in place. That includes also making sure that the noise at the shop floor, the noise at the streets, is still very much audible in enabling and protecting this this right to life and especially because when we view 2024 we view it as our 1994 where we must redress the the the, 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 the mistakes of 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 putting people that promised our citizens heaven and earth, and yet failed dismally at delivery. What do you mean by noise on the shop floor when it comes to healthcare facilities? What would you be prepared to do? The first thing is that at the shop floor, I'm relating to the facilities where us as healthcare workers are working. And I think that's the, that's the first place because the brand of shortage of not electricity only or load shedding, but the shortage of material human resources has not we you know has not actually gotten the spotlight it is it, it, you know when you speak about these things most of the time it's about you are airing the dirty laundry but i think healthcare workers have got an advocacy role and we are speaking to the conscience of the healthcare workers to say look where there is rot where we know these people instead of providing there is malice administration there is corruption and so forth we are going to make that let me let me let me rephrase let me rephrase the question what specific actions would your union consider if the electricity minister fails to comply with the court order our actions are quite clear. We are really going to start picketing, which is the right that the union has. We are going to make sure that we, we give this issue, like we are doing now, speaking to you on media and giving this uh, um, the story, not only local, but also even international um, coverage in ensuring that uh, the, the, the plight of our people are hurt. But also as a union, one thing that we have with us, you know, it, 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 it becomes a bit of a challenge for a union that is an essential service because at all material times, when we go and want to go all full-blown, we have to also think about the rights of those people that we are, we are nursing or we are we are taking care of at our facilities. But at the same time, it doesn't and it cannot excuse that we will always be able to fight through our media statements, through the media, through 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 picketing, through lobbying, right. through all, all manner of fighting back the department. Lerato Mtunzi from the Health and Allied Workers in Derby Union. Thank you very much. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. And just before we leave you, I want to mention that South Africa's economy has shrunk in the third quarter as logistics constraints and a chronic electricity shortage takes its toll. These numbers are just out. Gross domestic product contracting 0.7% in the three months through to September, compared with a growth of 1.5% in the prior quarter. The median estimate of 11 economists in a Bloomberg survey uh, was for output to shrink by 0.7%. 
0.1% in that period. Other stories on our radar, the death toll for the mining accident that occurred in Rustenburg last week has now risen to 13 and Israeli tanks and armoured personnel carriers as well as bulldozers have now entered the southern part of the Gaza Strip. MoneyWeb at midday, we are live at noon every weekday, then up as a podcast. As always, thank you for tuning in. Goodbye. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.